If you have your Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 2, and while you're turning there, just a couple details for you. In your uh, bulletin this morning are a set of notes, and those notes are a little more detailed than what typically the notes are, and um, you'll notice that I'm not going to hit every item that's in your notes this morning, just a heads up for you that if I don't touch on it, it's not because I'm skipping it, it's just more information that we wanted you to have. And then another detail um, in the bulletin also is an announcement that a week from tonight, next week Sunday night, is a get-together out at my house, and that's for individuals who are in their 50s and 60s, okay? So um, about 16 months ago, Lori and I started doing this thing out at our house, and we had all the 20-somethings out there, and then the 30s protested and said, well, what about us? So we did the 30s, and the 40s protested and said, what about us? So we did that. Well, during the 40s, people in their 50s said, what about us? So Next week, Lori and I are going to be hanging out with the old people, okay? So, I know, I'll get there someday, but man, sounds like you're lumping me in that crowd. So, so no kidding, every service I've done so far, all the 70s and 80s have said to me, so what's up with us? So that one's coming, we're just waiting a little bit, okay? So next week, Sunday night, that'll be out at our house and the detail, details are in your bulletin. Um, If you would, I'd like to pray with you before we step into the text. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we focus our thoughts right now and we quiet our hearts for the purpose of hearing from you. We recognize that we're going to look at a very familiar text. For those who grew up in church, um, this is a old, old story, but I I would pray in the midst of that, that you would show us things that we didn't know about you, or you would remind us again about your capacity. But Father, I specifically pray for people who are new to church, and maybe just recently begin investigating you and trying to understand you better. I ask, Father, that you would meet them right at the point of their need, their desire to know you better. And that the truth of who you are will come off these pages. And I freely recognize that a man can't do that, so I invite your Holy Spirit to be the instrument by which that happens. We collectively, as a body here, ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, and that you would allow us to know you better as a result of looking at this, and we offer it up to you in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you're new to New Hope, I want, I want you to hear me clearly on this so that you understand what we believe. We believe at New Hope that God is a living God and that He's the God of second chances. And you're going to see that very, very clearly this morning in the text that we're going to look at. As a matter of fact, the Bible is full of stories of individuals who either kept God at, at arm's length or rejected Him entirely at different times in their life only to come face forward to the the living God, especially in the New Testament, to discover Him through Jesus. You're going to see that in a a very significant this way way this morning, that God didn't give up on those individuals who had rejected Him in the past. As a matter of fact, we're going to start out with looking at members of His own disciples. We've been talking over the last couple weeks of those who had walked with Him during the course of three years. Some of them doubted that He was who He said He was. It took the resurrection for them to really get it, to understand. 
And so where we left off at last week was with the 12 who are his disciples along with a larger group, about 120 people total, who were in a room on top of a building when the Spirit of God came in amazing power, what we call today Pentecost. They were there for a festival, but they were praying because God told them to wait for the promised one. Now, there are many, many people in town at this time. You might remember this, that this is a big celebration weekend. I I likened it to like a a national event, like a Super Bowl festival. Individuals came from all over the world to be in Jerusalem because it was a big day of celebration. We call it Pentecost. They called it the Festival of Harvest. Many people from regions that we examined last week, some as far away as Iraq and Baghdad, some as far away as Iran, the southern part of the Fertile Crescent, all the way to the west into Rome, and all the way to the south in Africa. Fishermen and farmers, businessmen, religious leaders, moms and dads, vacationers, all in town, and they hear this amazing roar coming from heaven that they can't explain. The sound of a rushing wind, Scripture says. And not by tens, not by hundreds, but literally by thousands, people came streaming to see what is this? What's going on? Well, in the midst of that, we discovered that Peter's willing to stand up and begin talking to the crowd. Now, some of the crowd said, well, what's going on? Because they heard foreign languages being spoken by disciples who couldn't speak in those languages. They said, well, they're drunk. That's what's going on. Peter brushes it aside and says, it's not even lunchtime yet. Pick it up with me in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start off with verse 14. That's where we left off at last week. Verse 14 says this, But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose." For it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Right away we're told he's taking a stand with the eleven. This is very significant. Peter's one of the twelve, so the other eleven are with him. We saw two weeks ago that Matthias was chosen to replace Judas. Judas had betrayed Jesus. He went out and committed suicide. They chose Matthias. Matthias becomes one of the twelve. Why? Because they're all eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Now we're told in verse 14, Peter gets really loud. We're told he raises his voice. Why? Because there's thousands of people. They all need to be able to hear him. And verse 14 also tells us that he gets really bold because he says, let this be known. Now that's remarkable because 50 days earlier, Peter's the one who had been denying Jesus. He's the one whom the servant girl had said, I think you've been hanging out with Jesus. And he said, I don't know the man. Remember that three times? Now, 50 days later, we see him willing to stand before thousands of people and declare what he knows. What's the difference? He's been filled with the Spirit. Spirits come on him in power. So in verse 16, he says, what's going on here? This sound that you hear, these individuals speaking in foreign tongues, what's going on is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. Now, why would he say that? Why is he referring back to the Old Testament? Well, for one, remember, the Bible that you hold in your hands this morning is not the Bible that they held because they didn't have the complete Bible. All they had was the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, it was in scroll form. It wasn't even bound together. So he's referring to something that they would see if they went to the synagogue. One of the rabbis would pull out the scroll of Joel. He's referring to that to help them understand what they're seeing, what they're hearing is linked with God's Word. 
Now, in context, just understand this next verse that's coming up. When he says the name Joel, words, images pop in their mind. Especially when you see in verse 17, by the time he gets to the sixth word, he starts using the phrase, last days. Uh, Caleb, go ahead and throw verse 17 up on the screen, the next one. And I, I just want you to see that phrase, last days, that I underlined. This means something different to them than it does to you and I this morning. And so we really need to understand why he's saying this. Why is he referring to the book of Joel? Because this is shocking to these individuals in a way that's difficult for us to appreciate. Let's move forward and and look at this. Verse 17, And it shall be in the last days. Now remember, he's quoting Joel. God says that I will pour forth my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now understand, the Messiah was central to the thinking of the Jewish people. This is something that they are completely focused on. So when he begins using the phrase, last days, he's saying the Messianic age has begun. You ever had anybody ask you if you're living in the last days or talk with you about end times? You'll appreciate it in a different way. I have people ask me that all the time. Are, Are we in the last days? Are we in the end times? Is the end of the ages come? Well, Peter's using that phrase, verse 17, for a very specific reason. Because the last days did begin when Jesus came. Meaning it was the beginning of the end. Thousands of years of earth history have gone way before us, even before the time that Jesus came. So the first coming is the beginning of the end. It's the beginning of the last day. So if someone ever says, am I living in the last days? You can say, yes, we are actually. Let me back that up from Scripture. I'll show you a couple verses on the screen. Let's lean back into what we looked at last year in Hebrews. Hebrews 1.1. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days. See, we see that phrase. It's very familiar. He has spoken by the Son. 1 Corinthians 10.11. Here's another way of saying it. These things happened to them as a warning, but they were written down for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages come. See, the last days... They climax with the second coming of Jesus, but they began with the first coming of Jesus. What was a mystery to those in the Bible is that they didn't realize that there would be such a long span of time in between the first coming and the second coming. That tells me something remarkable about our God. Our God has allowed 2,000 years to pass between the first coming and the second coming, 2015 now. Why? Because your God is compassionate and patient and long-suffering. So you and I, we live in the space in between. The space between the beginning of the end and the climax of the end, which Jesus says is coming. So far, they've lasted 2,000 years. But God, during this time, is graciously calling people to Himself. So Peter's leaning back into the book of Joel to explain to them what you're seeing here is a fulfillment of what God said would happen. Let me just show you an excerpt actually from the book of Joel, and you'll see how it matches up to what Peter just said. Here's just two verses, Joel 2.28. 
it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. See, the book of Joel, it's ideal for Peter to use because this is really familiar to them. When they showed up at synagogue, this was a scroll that was available to them. It's distinctly Jewish. What you might not know about it is, though, the book of Joel is a book of doom. It's dark. It talks about horrible things happening to people who reject God and that there's plagues that will come upon the land. Matter of fact, look with me at some more of the description here. Peter's going to get into this in just a minute, but look at one more verse on Joel 2, verse 30. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. He's talking about things now associated with the second coming, things that are distant that have not happened yet, these things that are devastating in which the land is stripped bare. Now remember, these people are in party mode. They've showed up for a festival. So it's like this, Peter, it's Super Bowl weekend. I mean, come on, doom and gloom? But they hear this noise, it's compelling. They have to understand what's going on. Why is this happening? So he's linking the pieces together for them. So it appears shockingly inappropriate. But Peter's speaking the truth here to these people who are in party mode. Uh, Let's look at the next two out of this quote of Joel from verse 19. It says this, Acts 2 verse 19, And I will grant wonders in the sky, this is like we just read from Joel, in the sky above and signs on the earth below, Blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now put yourself in that setting. Among the thousands who have just rushed in to hear, what is this sound about? What Peter's saying is what's emerging before your eyes is all connected. It makes total sense. It's linked with the first coming of Jesus and the eventual second coming. That's why the wonders in the sky is talking about in the future, the second coming, associated with the great and glorious day of the Lord. So let's just be honest with each other. It's really tough living in the 21st century to appreciate how profoundly disturbing these statements are to a first century Jew. Because the Messiah is central in their thinking. They've been watching and waiting for him. There's an individual whom they have killed 50 days earlier who said he was the Messiah, but they've rejected him. So for Peter to say, what you're seeing, what you're hearing, this rushing of the wind, people speaking in tongues, is actually the beginning of the Messianic age is astounding for them. Because here's what they're linking. Wait. If the Messianic age has begun, if the last days have actually started, that must mean the Messiah has come. You think he has their attention at this point? Because they just rejected the Messiah. Peter has just raised the socially most explosive issue he can possibly raise in this setting. So that's why he makes this argument, verse 22. All that set us up for this. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. 
Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hand of godless men and put him to death. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to it before, but the phrase Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Nazarene is one of the most beautiful titles of Jesus in the Bible because it reminds you of something. It reminds us that the one that we know of as King of Kings came to live in a humble little village on planet Earth. It talks about the descent of God leaving the throne and taking on a human name, but there's something more to it than that. What was the name that they put on the top of the cross when they crucified Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Immediately their mind is taken back to the moment of the crucifixion. So he's specifically referring to Jesus of Nazareth for a reason. He said, this one has been attested by God. You've heard the miracles. You've seen what he actually did. You've actually heard of him raising the dead. Peter's argument is, it's not in the power of any human to do this. Why is Peter's boldness ramping up at this point? Because specifically, it's predicated on two undeniable truths. God worked miracles, and you have seen them. Who could do that unless God is with them? You and I in the Bible get just a glimpse of the miracles that Jesus did. As a matter of fact, John tells us that if all the things that Jesus actually did were written down, the world wouldn't contain them. Look at the way that he said it. John 21, 25. There are many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. See, they can't claim ignorance. They've seen these things. They're not done in secret. The entire region knew. Even a member of the Sanhedrin by the name of Nicodemus came to Jesus at night and said, you know, the thing, well, look with me on the screen, John 3, this is the way he said it. Rabbi, we know that you, have some, that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. See, they knew. It's not a secret. God attested to who Jesus is. So Peter's really building his argument here. But logically, if you're in that crowd, you're beginning to think, wait, if he's the Messiah, and he's got all this power and these abilities why did he not rescue himself from the cross? So Peter makes this statement. He was determined to be delivered over by the predetermined plan of God and the foreknowledge. That statement is huge. You, you want to go into deep theology? We're not going to go as deep as we could, but understand this statement is absolutely profound. Jesus is no victim, is what Peter is saying. He was delivered over by the plan of God. These are really simple words here, but they are profound with the weight of grace. One Greek word this morning. It's going to appear on the screen. It's not in your notes this morning, but you need to see it to appreciate the, the grace of God. And it's this word, ekdotos. When we're told that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God, the phrase delivered over is ekdotos. Now, when you see the definition on the screen, it says someone who surrendered. Don't think in terms of an individual who's been captured and they hold a gun to his head and then the individual says, okay, I, I give, I surrender. That's not the way it's being used. Surrendered, in this case, means to be traded over. 
to be traded. We saw that here recently in the United States. Five individuals who were prisoners in Guantanamo Bay were traded over for an individual, an American, who was in the Middle East. An exchange took place. That's more the concept behind ekdotos. So logically, you would say, wait, if God traded over Jesus, what did he get in return? You and I. Christ bought us with his blood. God delivered him over. The ransom was paid for you and I, for those who will name the name of Christ. Ekdotos is this huge word of significance, very tiny in structure, but so much meaning. This is what it means. My deliverer was delivered over of his own free will, God's own plan. Yes, sure enough, Judas betrayed him. And the leaders of Israel turned him over to Rome, and Rome turned him over to the cross. But ultimately, Peter's statement is, Ekdotos, God turned him over. It's the design of God. But Peter doesn't let him escape. So verse 23, he says, but you nailed him to the cross. See, there's a mix here between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And he's just nailed it in one sentence. God designed this. You carried it out. So you're culpable. We're completely responsible. What comes up next in verse 24 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I'd say it's my favorite, but I say that about a lot of verses. So just bear with me as we go to verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I think we're probably all on the same page, but let's just check. Would you say that the resurrection is the absolute proof of the deity of Jesus Christ? Amen, that's the truth, right? So it is the absolute undeniable truth of the deity. Without the resurrection, the execution of Jesus would just be the execution of a fraud. Because he said, I will rise again. In three days, I will rise again. If he didn't rise again, if he was not resurrected, he would be a fraud. So the greatest proof that Jesus is the Messiah is his resurrection. I'm going to show you billboard-sized proof of the resurrection of Jesus as we get to the very end of this this morning. We're almost there, but just bear with me. So we understand that he was risen again. Peter's hammering that point. And so he very casually says he was risen again, and through that, God did something. God put an end to the agony of death. Uh, women in here who have delivered children, you'll especially appreciate this word here because this word agony was always used specifically of women who were in labor, talking about the travail of birth pains. The word agony in the Greek language is oidnes, and it literally means this, pain, intense pain that is temporary. So what we see being used here, and it's the only place it's used in the New Testament, is Peter is using this phrase, agony, to help us to understand that what actually happened in the tomb was that it became a womb. The tomb became a womb through which God delivered Jesus from the agony of death. That's a match for Scripture in Acts 13 and in the Old Testament. Look at the way that God says it. Acts 13.33, God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
So the same God who ekdotos, who delivered Jesus over because it was his plan, delivered him also from the tomb and raised him again. God delivered Jesus according to verse 24. Why? Because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. How can death hold the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life? The King of kings, the Lord of lords, who also said, I cannot be defeated by death. It's powerless to hold the king of life. Death can't do it. So we come into this next section as a big chunk. Don't typically do that that at New Hope, but here's why we're going to do that. Because he starts quoting the Old Testament again, and it's King David. But you're going to see some phrases underlined that I think are especially important for us to hear. Let me show it to you on the screen. Verse 25 says it this way. For David, he's quoting King David now. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's leaning back into the Old Testament. Things that King David wrote 1,000 years before Jesus lived. Let's keep moving. This is his argument here. Verse 29 of why he did it. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter is quoting David about Jesus for specific reasons. You may have seen it on the screen when I listed with an underlined phrase, I will not be shaken. You may know what Jesus went through on the cross. You may know what he expected to endure. It's one thing to know that mentally, but it's another thing to ask yourself, how could Jesus keep his focus No matter the trials, how could he say, I will not be shaken? Your right hand is beside me. In the ancient world, if you use the phrase, your right hand is beside me, you are speaking of something very, very specific that is familiar in our world today, but perhaps you have not stopped to think about it. Most of us here have gone to wedding ceremonies. And when you watch the bride come down the aisle, the bride takes her place at the front of the platform and the groom stands at her right side. It's as ancient as time. And the reason that a groom stands at the right side of his bride is because he is taking on the role of her protector. To take on someone's right side means you've got their back. You are their defender So even more ancient than that, when bodyguards went out to protect their kings, the shield was on the left arm. They stood at the right side of their king so they could use their sword with their right arm. 
backing themselves up to always protect their king standing at his right side. So for David to quote saying that his right hand causes him to not be shaken, he's playing into this very ancient language. That's why Jesus can say, my heart is glad, my tongue is exalted, because what I'm about to go through is temporary. I will endure this because of the joy that's set before me. That's a match for Hebrews. Lean back into our study of Hebrews last year. Look with me on the screen, Hebrews 12 too. Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross. Peter's making a brilliant theological argument here. Helping these party crowd people who are vacationers, who are devoted and, and dedicated to God, who have come to celebrate to understand the link between all these pieces. Now, no doubt David's in the tomb. That's why Peter said, hey, we've got his tombstone here. We can see his headstone. We know David's not talking about himself. So if David's not talking about himself, he's got to be talking about someone else. This is prophecy written 1,000 years before it ever happened. So just to be really clear, Peter says it this way in verse 31. Look at this excerpt on the screen. He looked ahead. Peter wants the crowd to understand. David looked ahead, spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. So the argument is absolutely conclusive. Now, if I've lost you on the rest, just hear this summary here. The Psalms speak of a resurrection. David was not resurrected, so it can't be him. So if it's not David, it's got to be speaking of the Messiah as he's looking forward in time. That's Peter's argument. Hence, the Messiah will raise, rise from the dead. So Peter's conclusion is absolutely powerful as he sets up this final statement, verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses, meaning the 12 eyewitnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. What do they see in here? The rushing wind. The sound of people talking in tongues. How is this possible? What you're seeing and hearing is all linked. The first coming and the second coming. What Peter has just done is brought this entire crowd full circle all the way back around to the reason for the Pentecost. Very, very clear in what he's saying. And the implications are staggering. So look at how he concludes it. Verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The amazing thing about the Bible is that God will always tell you the truth. God always tells you the truth. The verdict is in, and they're on the wrong side. This same Jesus you killed, you crucified. If you've been keeping track, Peter, in just two paragraphs, has told them twice, you murdered him. Why? Be so emphatic about that. How could Peter say that? Many of them were likely not even in town this is the vacation crowd who came in for the celebration. Many of them likely were not there for Passover just 50 days earlier. How could Peter say that? They didn't all nail him. They didn't all hold the hammer. Rome did that, right? 
God always tells us the truth about who we really are. God always tells us the truth about ourselves. So check this out. God drew the crowd. God sent out the party invitations. He shows the crowd that He's there. You hear the wind? It's me. You see them speaking in tongues? It's me. I'm really here. God has invited them to the party to tell them the truth. See, He's not shining them on. He will not shine you on. God will tell you who you are. Sinners in need of a Savior. See, what's true is that you and I were not there. Historically, we couldn't have been present just like these individuals. But it's true, every one of us is responsible for the cross. Some of you have seen the movie that Mel Gibson produced called The Passion of the Christ. It came out like eight years ago. Mel refused to appear in his own movie. He produced it, he financed it, but he didn't want to be in it except for one scene. And the one scene is at the crucifixion. He told his production crew, I reserve the right for one thing for myself. I will appear in the movie, but all you will see is my hand holding the nail that goes into Jesus' hand. So when you watch the movie, you see an arm reach across with a leather band. Why? Because Mel said to the crew, I nailed him to the cross. It's my sin that put him there. See, Mel knows Romans 3.23. In Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're going to love this. In the Greek language, that word all right there, all, it literally means all. Is that not amazing? See, God meant that. All means every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is really, really hard news to hear when you live in a world where trophies are handing out just for breathing. Check it. You sign up for a soccer team, all you have to do is stand on the sidelines. Somebody hands you a trophy at the end of the season. You're awesome. How do you hear this kind of news that you're sinners in need of a Savior? The same way that this party crowd heard it. They came for a celebration. They're devout people. They're there to worship God on a festival weekend. And Peter has just told them, you crucified the Lord. There is truth here. There's freedom in God telling you the truth about yourself. Because when God tells you the truth about yourself, you've got a grid. You've got a grid to measure yourself against. Who am I in the eyes of God? See, God's not shining a sun. He tells us the truth about who we are. And it's really, really hard to hear when you think you're awesome. But without God telling you, you're not that awesome. You need a Savior. You continue to operate as though you don't need one until God tells you the truth. So when God says everyone has fallen short, He meant that. That's why Peter can freely say, you nailed Him to the cross. The truth is, New Hope, God knows me. God knows you. And He knows what's really in there. He knows how we function. He knows how we think. And He gives us a grid. And He says, now, this is who you really are. And you can see it in my word. Here's the beauty of this. You have someone you can trust in God. Because a true friend 
tells you the truth about yourself. That's your God. He tells you the truth so that you can make a change, so that you can correct it. Now, before we wrap this up, verse 36 has got this really interesting phrase. It says, God made him both Lord and Christ. Why would Peter state it that way? Well, to be Lord and Christ is very specific in its meaning. Christ is the word for Messiah, Mashiach. What was Messiah's responsibility? Messiah was the one who would set things right to take out the wrong and bring in the right. So they're, they're tracking with that term. God has made him both Lord and Christ. He said Messiah. What about Lord? Well, Lord is the Greek term for the Hebrew phrase Yahweh, the name for God. You have killed God Messiah. God made him both Lord and Christ, meaning not that that was his beginning. Jesus has always been God, but he's been made the Messiah. God Messiah has been killed. So he charges them with executing the very one that God declares Lord and Christ. The conclusion is absolutely devastating. If you're a visual person, picture it this way. He has taken them to the edge of the cliff. Literally, one more step in rejecting Jesus means a bottomless pit before them. And so Peter throws them the lifeline because they're about to ask the question. Now that they've realized who this is, they've got a response. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? See, they've got no ability to escape. They're guilty before God and they're absolutely overcome with grief. This is the exact same response many of you have known. When you gave your heart over to God, you came to the point where you recognized you were a sinner in need of a Savior. People always respond to the gospel message. The only question is, how? Do you respond accepting it or respond rejecting it? These people did it. They knew they did it. Their basic knowledge tells them they've done something that cannot be undone. So they're absolutely overwhelmed with despair. What do we do? That's the exact same response that Paul had on the road to Damascus. What do I do? The Philippian jailer, what do I do? They're feeling the prick of their conscience. You might even be feeling that yourself right now, wondering, what do I do about this? If you feel that right now, that sense of conviction that you've never surrendered your life to Christ, that feeling... That sense of reality, know this, it comes directly from God the Father. Man cannot do that to you. Man cannot bring conviction. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So if you're sensing that right now, don't ignore that. Immediately the question that pops in our mind when we start sensing it is this. Does God love me enough to really forgive me of my past? Does, does He really love me enough that I mean, I created a lot of garbage in my background. Just chew on this for a minute. The offer that he has made are to the people who killed Jesus. Those who stood there having rejected the Son of God, even though they saw the miracles. 
Let's wrap this up with Peter's response to what they should do. Verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children and all for all who are far off, as many as our Lord God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. What's Peter doing? He's speaking the truth in love. Peter answers with the only possible correct answer, repent. Now, I know that perhaps if you've grown up in church, you've seen pastors do this illustration where they say, well, repent is like this, or somebody's going this way, and they turn 180 degrees and go the opposite direction. Well, that's true. In its very literal form, that's what the word repent means. But there's far more to it than that. Because repenting in a biblical way is about more than just regret. It's about recognizing that what I was doing was completely wrong, and I've got to go the opposite way. So when Peter uses the word repent, he's literally calling them to recognize what you have done is rejected the very one who can give you forgiveness. So when he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, can you imagine in a Jewish crowd among thousands of people what they're feeling in that moment because they're incredibly nationalistic and their nation has just declared Jesus to be a criminal of the nation, the one whom they executed on the cross. The entire nation was behind it. And now Peter's saying, this is the one you've got to publicly identify with. In other words, in 2015 language, you've got to climb in the baptism tank and let people know I belong to Jesus. How hard. You might ask yourself, how could Peter possibly ask them to do that? They're going to be social outcasts among all of their society. Well, rather than trying to resolve this issue, let's look at what they actually did. This is the last verse, verse 41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. You talk about church growth on an epic scale? There's not enough cookies in our atrium to feed that crowd. (laughs) You know, way more important than that. The numbers are significant. Here's the billboard. People who knew what it was to worship God, who were devout enough to travel from around the known world to be in Jerusalem for the festival of the harvest, to worship the Old Testament God that they knew and followed and were devoted to, have stood and listened to all the arguments that Peter made. And 3,000 people who were alive at the time Jesus was crucified have now said, that's me. I am in. It absolutely makes sense. I totally get it. Biggest billboard I've seen in the New Testament for the proof of the resurrection. 3,000 people who are willing to say to the society around them, this is true. This is absolutely true. I totally get it. It convinced 3,000 souls who knew Jesus died on the cross because it was well known among their community. And yet they are understanding this is true. Much more even important than that. When you leave here this morning, leave with this thought on your mind or even perhaps question. How much does our God love? how much that he even offered this opportunity 
to these very people who had executed his son. That salvation is offered despite the earlier rejection. You are witnesses this morning to the magnitude of God's grace. In, in week one, when we started studying Acts, I said what you're going to see is God's passion for people to know him and be in relationship with him. That's what this is about. That's the reason the Holy Spirit was poured out. So when he says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved, it's not just those who have their spiritual act together. It's, it's not just those who show up on a really snowy Sunday morning and still sit with their Bibles and study God's word. It's available to your friends and your relatives, those who are far off, if they will just receive it. It's available to you this morning if you haven't received it. God meant that. Everyone who asks. And just so you're thinking like I'm thinking and you're on the right page here as far as the Bible is concerned, there are no stepladders at the foot of the cross. We're all on level ground. We're all sinners in need of a Savior. It's just that some of us in this room have already accepted that and believe it and own it. Others have yet to do that. And if that's you this morning and you want to receive the things that I just talked about, talk to me after the service. I'd be honored to do that. I'd be pleased to talk to you about this brand new beginning. But if that doesn't work for you this morning, grab one of the note cards in front of you. There's these notes to the pastor on the backside of the Get Connected card. Just write your name on there and say, I want to talk. And slide it in the offering box. I'd be pleased and honored to talk with you. Believe me, I will do that. So church, how about if we, before we hit these snowy roads, join together in prayer about these issues that we've just read. Would you join me in that? Let's do that together. Father, I believe that within the sound of my voice, you're calling someone's heart right now. And I don't know who that is, but you do. And pray that you would help them to not let this easily escape, but rather that you would continue to show yourself merciful and compassionate and forgiving. You said you would separate our sins as far as the east is from the west and remember them no more. Father, for that, that one struggling with the reality of this right now, I pray that you would surround them with your arm of comfort. Call them to yourself. For this auditorium full of individuals who are believers, who believe that you sent Jesus to die for us and to take our sins away, I pray that you would send us out remembering that you will always tell us the truth about who we are. You are the one whom we can depend on. You are close and conscious friend. And you are our strength. So God, I ask for your church as they take on this week that you would translate that into boldness and that they would speak confidently of your love to those whom they know need it. We live in a watching world, Father, who are desperate to know this. Father, I pray for your blessing on these who have studied your word this morning, that they've taken time out of their schedule to be here, and they've honored you with their song. Send them out now with your blessing. We ask this in the mighty name of our soon-coming King, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.